Learning about Jesus from the one who was his closest friend. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn about truth and love from John the Beloved. We're in 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. We finished verse 15 yesterday, and now we're jumping into verse 16. I'll just go ahead and start reading it. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So I'm kind of sensing a theme here. I, you know, it's kind of subtle. But uh, if you really read between the lines, you'll kind of see that John is, um, you know, kind of emphasizing a particular point that basically God is love. <laughs> That the whole point of God is love. <laughs> he uses the word love, counted it up 13 times in this in these six verses, right? He used love 13 times. That's, that's like um, more than twice a verse he uses the word love. So John is really, really, really talking about love. No question about it. And this is what Jesus said. He said all the commandments of the Old Testament can be summarized into two ways of summarization. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. And then we talked about yesterday about what loving our neighbor means. Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. He said, I'm not going to tell you necessarily who your neighbor is, but I'm going to show you what love looks like. Oh, no, by the way, the person in the story was somebody that you hate because <laughs> they're from a different city, different town, and you guys just put them down. When I was a kid, we used to tell jokes uh, about different ethnicities. We don't do that anymore. We don't talk about it because it's, uh, is that xenophobia? Anyway, but, but or, or classism or racism wasn't really a race, but we don't do that anymore. But, but at Jesus' time, they did. They had a people that they didn't like and they would never associate with. And these were, these were not good people. They probably told Samaritan jokes going to the well and that sort of thing. But but Jesus says that's who you're supposed to love. You're supposed to love your enemies, love those who persecute you, love those who hate you, love God, love your enemy. And it's and what we looked at yesterday or in the last chapter was that um, it's not just that we love our enemies, but we actually love at the risk of ourselves. But also that you really get invested in somebody else's life, somebody else's life to make sure you understand what love is going to do with them. That it's not just throwing money at the problem. It's also understanding why the problem is there and perhaps throwing different kinds of things in their life besides money. Money is the easy one. Like, this is what the federal government doesn't understand. They think that if they can just throw money at a problem, it's going to solve the problem. And as you have all seen, money doesn't always solve every problem. And you can throw as much money to the problem 
as you can, and it still won't solve the problem. For example, the coronavirus, the last stimulus was, I was just reading this in the, an article, that there's going to be $160 billion to schools. Or that's in the next coronavirus bill. But there's still $50 billion from the previous coronavirus bill that hasn't been spent yet because they can't get the money out to the appropriate agencies to do anything with it. And even if there is money, it doesn't necessarily solve every problem. Money is just money is just a way to kind of... I, money can be, let me say, because money isn't always this way. But money could be a way, can be a way. It's just, I'm just going to throw money at the problem and the money's going to solve itself. But sometimes it takes leadership, it takes care and concern to make sure that money is spent properly, to make sure that that programs are actually going to do what they're supposed to do. A lot of times when you throw large sums of money at a, at a program, you're going to have the vultures come in and they're going to suck up a lot of that money. This is one of the problems with aid to foreign, uh, to foreign countries like Sometimes there will be amounts of money or food or clothing or supplies or whatever thrown into a, a foreign country, and we assume that those things will get to the people that need it, but oftentimes they are stolen or redirected to the very rich and powerful who then use it and sell it, and it never gets to the people, which is why, honestly, you have disease, sickness, Things that we think we've solved in other parts, we've definitely solved it here in the United States. And you would think it would be an easy thing to solve in other parts of the country, but you can't because you can't get the aid to the people who really, really, really need it because somehow along the way, oftentimes it's siphoned off by the rich and powerful and the wealthy and the, the leadership in those countries. And I'm not saying we shouldn't give the aid. Don't get me wrong. All I'm saying is that we have to be clever we have to really figure out how to bypass the people who want to steal that and use it for themselves and bypass those people and get it to the people who really, really, really need it. And I think probably, I mean, I don't know the players here in the United States, so I don't know, but just based upon human nature, it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of these funds that are coming out in the federal government don't get siphoned into people who are extremely wealthy and don't need the funds and they're just... They're just rich and powerful enough and connected enough to know how they know how to get those funds before they go to the people who really, really, really need it. So anyway, um, that is uh, that was kind of what we talked about yesterday is that you have to really, really be careful. Don't just throw money at the problem. You really, really have to be careful to understand how that money is going to be used. The other thing that can happen is you can actually uh, hurt somebody by giving them too much. I mean, this seen this time and time again, like somebody wins the lottery and they win a million dollars a year for 10 years and they live well for 10 years, but for some ever, whatever reason, they don't save or they don't, they use it on themselves. They don't use it on the world around them. And at the end of 10 years, it's all gone and they feel worse because they didn't use the money wisely. And now they're depressed and horrible and this is why I don't play the lottery because I don't support that system because 95 out of 100 times people who play the lottery, they're not, they're not better off when they get large sums of money. They just, they just aren't. So 
that's a that's a faulty system. It's actually that system preys on people who who have uh, who get excited by the potential of winning money. Uh, and fortunately, they'll never win it because the lottery, like the big prizes in the lottery are one in a hundred million or something like that. <laughs> and uh, one in a hundred million is not uh, good odds. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> Pretty bad odds. <laughs> but God is love. And what love means is what Jesus did where he became flesh and dwelt with us to be face-to-face -face with us in our lives, to show us how to live, to show us how to love, to show us what God looks like. He didn't send a messenger down and say, this is what God looks like. He didn't send a messenger down to say, God loves you. No, he sent himself down to say, I love you. And that's truly what life, love is. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. The day of judgment, of course, is the day when the trumpet sounds, all the dead shall rise, will be in front of God. And we know, because we've been baptized and brought into the kingdom, that we are in the kingdom and he loves us. We are children of the king. We have no punishment at the day of judgment because of Jesus, because Jesus is love and he loved us and he wraps his arms around us. And there's no fear in love. Because perfect love drives out fear. Now, this is something you also might have. This is another one of those gems from 1 John that you could have on your wall. Perfect love drives out fear. So if you're afraid in this world, if there are things you're afraid of, perfect love will solve that problem. Perfect love drives out fear. Why is that? In its simplest terms, it's because... We know that when we are safe and secure in the arms of Jesus, that there's nothing that can harm us. There's no power on earth, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, things past, things present can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from love. That drives out fear. Have you ever had a time in your life when you uh, were not afraid? I can think in my life, when I was a kid and holding mommy or daddy's hand and going down the street or being part of the family surrounded by people that love me because we grew up in a large family, right? I had a lot of kids in our family. So whenever we would go out in a crowd, I never felt I was the youngest, second to the youngest in that crowd. So I, I felt like there was no fear there, there because I was surrounded by people that loved me, that cared about me, that, that would protect me. Mom and dad would protect me. I didn't even know about the dangers and the evils of the world when I was a little kid, right? You don't. You, all, the, all you know about is holding mommy and daddy's hand and saying, I'm protected. And the fear comes when mommy and daddy go away and now you don't see mommy and daddy. And there's a little bit of fear there, which is probably why one-year-olds and two-year-olds get fearful when mom leaves the room because when you're a one-year-old, when mom leaves the room, they don't understand that mom's in the next room. They immediately freak out and say, mom's not there. I'll never see her again. I'm going to fear. But as they grow older, they, they can change that. But being safe and secure in the arms of your parents is the most, most comfort you could possibly have. So that, that's why Jesus said, enter, enter the kingdom as a child. 
Because when you can see that God is present with you, that he's holding onto your hand even though you can't see him, that love, that compassion, that fatherhood drives out all fear. Another thing that people you know, can have drive against fear is, is money, wealth, power, fame, the things of this earth that can solve many, many of the problems of this earth, but they don't solve all the problems of this earth because the one problem that all the science and technology has never been able to solve is that of death. And Jesus solves that problem because he holds on to us from now until eternity. And death is just a temporary thing until he calls us out of the grave. And he has conquered death. And because he loves us, we too conquer death. So there's really nothing in this world to fear. The worst fear of all is death, and Jesus has conquered that. So really, there is nothing to fear. God is love, and because God loves us, there's no fear. Because love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Now, this is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's kolasin, K-O-L-A-S-I-N, kolasin. It means punishment for the purposes of correction. There's another Greek word that means punishment for the purpose of retribution or judgment, tamoria. But, but this word, kolasin, means punishment for the purposes of growing our faith, growing deeper in God. You almost might even say the, it's the word pruning, right? That, uh, that God is pruning us. That's what, I guess that's a loose translation of this type of punishment. It's punishment for the purposes of correction so that we, that we don't do it again, that it's not going to kill us. So fear has to do with that type of punishment. But the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We have no punishment because Jesus took away the punishment. So there is nothing that we should ever fear in this world because Jesus took away the punishment of sin. We love God. We love our neighbor. We imitate Jesus in our lives. There's no reason to fear. So we love perfectly. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. So if you claim you love God, this is a hard one. If you claim you love God, then you should love your brother or sister. Now, John uses the term here, Adelphoi, which is a brother. And it usually means a brother in the faith, a brother in the church. But as Jesus talks about it, I think you can expand it a little bit to pretty much anybody who's living in this world is a brother or a sister. So if you claim to love God and yet you hate your brother or sister, then you're a liar. So we are called to love all those people around us. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And this, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love a brother and sister. So we're called to love. Jesus loved us and we're called to love other people. And if you don't love other people, you're a liar and we don't want to be liars. We want to be followers of the truth. And so we love. And as we've seen previously, loving means getting messy. It means like the Good Samaritan. 
getting down off of our horse, going across the street, seeing the broken person, putting them on our horse, getting their life, taking him to the nearest end. It's not just throwing money at the problem, although money is involved. It's also helping the people that we encounter get through the troubles and the trials and the tribulations and the and the murders and the the beating up on left by the side of the road. That's what we're called to do as a church. This this one is hard because because it's it's there's only so much one person can do. I I have the capacity to be involved in people's lives up to a point. And then after that point, I can't. I just simply don't have the time and the resources and the money. And it hurts me and it pains me whenever I see somebody that's hurting and I can't do anything about it because of other commitments in my life. And this, this, is, the, this is the struggle that Christians have because we can't do it all. And so there will always be people who are in need, who are hurting, that we will not be able to help. And this is, this tugs at our heartstrings and it makes us sad and it makes us depressed. And this is the time when we have to call upon God and say, God, forgive me that I can't do this. But I can do this. And so, Lord, help me to do this. Help me to know when I can do the things that I can do and help me to know when I can't do the things I can't do and give me wisdom, Lord, to kind of separate those two things. And the church, though, can. There are, there are probably 2 billion people on the earth of 7 billion people that are followers of Jesus, followers of the way, from various different tribes, sects, and all that sort of thing. Seven billion people out of the, that's that's about a third. Is that right? Maybe maybe about a third. I'm just going to guess about a third of the people in the world that are followers of Jesus. And you would think that with seven billion people on the earth, two or two and a half billion people would be able to solve a lot of the healing and the hurt and the pain that's going on in this world. And yet, it seems like we're not making headway. It's like we make headway and then we fall away and we make headway and so we go to other places and we make, make headway and we fall away. And that too has to do with our struggle within ourselves. That if we could take all the energy that we spend intra-fighting within Christian denominations and poured all that energy into the world around us, I wonder, wonder what we could do. I wonder what things the church could do. But it seems like we spend most of our time making sure that our tribe is correct, that the things we're doing are correct and the things that you're doing are not correct and, and we're going to fight against you. Yeah, perfect example is the federal government. Perfect example. Federal government is basically in a two-party system. You have Republicans and Democrats, and they spend the vast majority of their time fighting against each other to gain more power because if they gain more power, then they have more 
ways to enact the agenda which they think will solve all the problems of the world. And so at some level, you have to compete against the other side for those resources. But when the competition, when it becomes more about the competition than the people that you're trying to serve, then that's a problem. So if all the people in government, in leadership, let's say people in leadership, well, it's a House or Senate, maybe you know, a state or federal government, if they spend the vast majority of their time arguing against each other and not really looking to solve the problems, just think of how much they could do if they would simply work together to solve problems. And, and they can't. It's, it's human nature that they can't. Um, which means that governments in and of themselves can't really solve problems, but the church can. The church really can, actually. The church is amazing. The church has funding, it has people, it has passion, it has resources, and they have a mission, which is to love God and love their neighbor, of which pulls deeply in their heartstrings. And so a lot of times, a lot of the problems that have existed in our world have not been solved by governmental agencies, but they have been solved by followers of Jesus in the kingdom banding together to fight against problems that exist in the world. And that, my friends, is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Because I believe, yeah, people have wondered, right, you know, why, why, the, why would you give up engineering to become a pastor? And when you're in the engineering field, you, you kind of see a, a level of government, a level of frustration that a lot of people don't see. That, um, that if, you really, if you really play that game and understand that game all the way to the end, it's not going to solve the problem of the, of the world. None of these things solve the problem of the world. For example, right now, oh, I'm getting a lot of trouble for this, but I'll close with this. Um, right now, there are, is a segment of the population that says capitalism is the problem of the world. Now, capitalism works in many, many parts of the world because human nature is one of greed. And capitalism and greed go hand in hand. But is it capitalism is the problem or is it the greed behind the capitalism that's the problem? And from a theological standpoint, the, the root problem of mankind is greed. <laughs> it's, it's what Luther called curvatus in se, man curved in on himself. We want everything for ourselves. And so capitalism taps into that and helps people who naturally are greedy, want power, want fame, want money, want all that. And it taps into that to make goods and services and products that not only help the world, but help the person that, you know, that create those goods, services, and products. And so in one way, that has really um, benefited mankind by lifting a lot of people out of poverty. If you look at the nations around the world that, that where the, they've been lifted out of poverty, capitalism has helped in those ways. But the problem is that capitalism never stops, right? And the human greed never stops. And so if you want to solve the problem, a lot of people say, well, let's attack capitalism. Let's, let's make it so that uh, there, is no, there is no private property wealth. I mean, that's the most extreme where you get into communism, where there is no 
like individually held property. It's held by somebody else and we all share it. And all of these different forms of government that, that could exist, that have been tried and some of them haven't been tried and all that sort of thing, but it never solves the problem of greed because you can't solve the problem of greed. It's endemic to our, it's endemic to our nature. The only way to solve the problem of greed is to let Jesus deeply affect a person's life, to transform their heart, to realize that life is sweeter and richer when we give of ourselves to the other, when we get off the horse and walk across the street and help the person back onto the horse and take them into town and, and heal their wounds and make our lives more about the other than it is about ourselves and break our addiction to greed, break, break our addiction to ourselves. And that truly is the life that God has called us to, a life of love, a loving the other person. John knew this deeply. And John fought his whole life to bring this message of Jesus to the world. And we as a church continue to bring this message of Jesus to the world. That Jesus is about the other about loving God and loving our neighbor. And when the church does that, if the church could just figure out a way to do that, my goodness, what a change would happen in this world. What a change. And um, that's my hope. That's my dream. That's my desire, is that we really take these words of John to heart, that we love God and love our neighbor. So I think we'll end it there. Uh, let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for loving me and give me your strength and your spirit and power and wisdom to love the world around me and to continue to love you. In your name we pray, amen.